I wonder if you would open your Bibles to Psalm 15. It's page 534 in your chair Bibles in front of you. And when we first read Psalm 15, it might actually be very, very confusing to us because it seems to suggest that a relationship with God is based upon works. When the psalmist opens up in verse 1 and he talks about the tent, God's holy hill, he's referring to the tabernacle and later the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem where God dwelt. And when he talks about sojourning or dwelling there, it's a reference to being accepted as a guest and enjoying fellowship with the Lord himself. Um, Immediately, David says to us, the criteria for doing this is what we do. He says in verse 2, we have to walk blamelessly. We have to do what is right. And don't we immediately cringe at that? Don't we say, well, wait a minute, as we scratch our heads, uh, we are accepted by grace through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. And all God's people said, Amen. So then we come to Psalm 15 and we say, what gives here? Well, Psalm 15 is not talking about salvation, how we are made right with God. Rather, it is talking about the purpose of our salvation, that is to walk in fellowship with God. This is the very same concern that we see, for example, in 1 John 1, 7. Notice what the Bible says in that place. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. This verse is telling us that the purpose of our salvation is fellowship with God. God has saved us that we might belong to His family and enjoy a healthy relationship with Him as our Father. But notice, in order to do that, we have to walk in the light as He is in the light. 1 John 2.6 says it in a very similar way. Notice what this verse says. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What's interesting is the word abide in this verse. It's the same thought as dwell in Psalm 15 verse 1. It means to settle down as a guest and enter into intimate fellowship with a person who has invited you into their presence. Now, understanding all of that then, Psalm 15 tells us the requirements for enjoying intimacy with God. And this morning, we want to look at this psalm and we want to think together about what does it mean, what does it require for us to live a life of fellowship and intimacy with the Lord. Uh, Pastor Warren Wiersbe has said this, it is important to note that Psalm 15 is not a prescription for being saved, but a description of how saved people ought to live if they want to please God and fellowship with Him. 
By the way, did you notice at the end of the psalm that there is a reward? In verse 5, at the end of the psalm, he says, He who does these things shall never be moved. That is a very interesting word. It means to stagger. It was a word that meant to be shaken violently. Psalm 119, 165 says this, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. You know what that's describing? That's describing the abundant life that is filled with strength, with purpose, and consistency in the will of God. As I was preparing this week for this message, I came across this very helpful statement from Pastor Chuck Swindoll. And I think he puts exactly on the mark what Psalm 15 is saying to us. Look what he says. A believer needs to make sure he is walking in the will of God consistently to enjoy fellowship with God and stability in his life. That is exactly the concern of Psalm 15. And so this morning, as we uh, learn about this, how can I walk in intimacy with the Lord? How can I experience the kind of abundant life that He came to give? Let's look together at these requirements. What we're going to see is there are 12 couplets that give us six requirements for living in intimate fellowship with the Lord and therefore consistently being in His will. Let's take a moment, shall we, and pray. And let's ask the Lord to drive home His truth into our hearts. Father, this morning, nothing could be more important to a true believer than to please the God who has loved that believer and saved them. And then, Lord, to walk in intimate fellowship with You, we know that's why You have brought us into Your family. And then out of that, to have a, a strength, a purpose, a consistency in life that makes us unmovable in the will of God. Lord, nothing could be more wonderful to the believer. And so today, teach us now how to live that kind of life. For Jesus' sake, we pray. And all God's people said together, Amen. Let's notice requirement number one. First of all, the psalmist says this, our character must be undivided or complete in pursuing what is right. Our character must be undivided or complete in pursuing what is right. Notice verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, that is the first couplet giving to us the first requirement. Now, the word blameless here is a word that means whole, sound, or complete. It is not describing sinlessness or no human being would qualify, right? But it is used of somebody who takes great care to be morally well-rounded. This was used in the Old Testament of an animal brought for sacrifices that had no glaring defect. In sports, we speak about a well-rounded athlete, don't we? 
A well-rounded athlete is somebody who works on all phases of their game. They're not just strong in one area and weak in the rest. If you think about baseball, we talk about ball players who are all field and no hit. No baseball player ever wants that to be said about them. All I can do is field. I cannot hit. They want to be well-rounded in every phase of the game. So, bring that here. The blameless person wants to be like God in all areas of life, not in just some. So notice, out of this, verse 2, they do what is right. The proof is in the pudding, isn't it? A character is never just passive, but it reveals itself in daily actions all the time. Now, I don't believe that in every area of his life, uh, Vince Lombardi was the greatest example for uh, us. In fact, I think some of his priorities were well out of whack. But he said one thing sometime that uh, has always intrigued me. He said this, Excellence is not a sometime thing. It is an all-the-time thing. Now, I want you to take that and bring that here. For the believer in fellowship with God, character is not a sometime thing. It is an all-the-time thing. Let me say that again. For the believer wanting to walk in fellowship with God and in intimacy before Him, character is not a sometime thing. It is an all-the-time thing. You may remember in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3 when uh, the people came to John the Baptist to repent and to be baptized. They asked him this question. If we get baptized in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, verse 10 of Luke 3, what then shall we do? What does it mean for us, they were saying, to follow the Messiah? I want you to listen to what John the Baptist said. And he answered them, verse 11, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So he said, help the less fortunate. And then the tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. In other words, don't cheat people or take from him. And then verse 14, the soldiers also asked, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Don't use your power to bully others. Be satisfied and not greedy for more. You see, what John was saying is exactly what Psalm 15 is saying, is that when the Messiah comes and He invites us into a wonderful relationship with God, He will call us to be people of character pursuing what is right. That's always where it begins. Let's look at the second one, number two. 
Number two, we are trustworthy. What we say matches what we do. Notice he says in verse 2 that we speak the truth in our heart and we do not slander with our tongue. Now this is a very vivid way of describing trustworthiness to say you speak the truth in your heart. Uh, It's very interesting. What it refers to is this. Formulating a truthful statement in one's mind and honestly revealing that statement in one's speech. If you were to uh, read the Amplified Bible this morning, that puts it this way, speaks and thinks the truth in his heart. So what it's describing is this. What comes out of the person's mouth is the very same as what is in their heart. We don't need to question if what they say is really what they intend to do. I think you know, as as I know, that we can say a lot of words, but what we will really do is what we think and what's in our heart. And a trustworthy person is the kind of person who not only says certain words with his mouth or her mouth, But those words match exactly what is in their heart and in their mind so that no one will have to question, will they do what they said? Is what they said what they really meant? Now notice, one of the greatest tests of this is slander or gossip. He says in verse 3, if we're this way, we will not slander with our tongue. We all do that behind people's backs, don't we? Slander, as you know, is spreading untruths about others. Gossip is spreading things that are true about others, but for the purpose of knocking them down or taking them down a peg. So we might say, well, it's true, so I can say it. But gossip is speaking in such a way that even though it is true, the design is to harm the person that we are speaking about. The late Pastor Jim Boyce, who pastored for many years in Philadelphia, said this, Isn't this a chief sin in the church? Aren't many bold in gossiping about and harming others with their tongues? I think more damage has been done to the church and its work by gossip, criticism, and slander than by any other single sin. So I say, don't do it. Bite your tongue before you criticize another believer. My mother, when I was growing up, would often say this to us. If you can't find something good to say about somebody, finish it with me. Say nothing at all. And probably more than anybody in my life, my mother lived by that code. If she couldn't find something good to say about somebody, she would say nothing at all. Do you know when the only time we ought to be discussing other people's faults is? Is when we are seeking counsel to help that person. 
So maybe we have a problem with somebody else and we can't resolve that problem and so we go to see a counselor. And obviously as we see that counselor, we have to talk about the faults of that other person. But the reason that we are doing it is because we want to help them with those faults. That's the only time we should be talking about the faults of others. You see, we're trustworthy if we're in intimacy with the Lord. What we say matches what we do. Notice the next one. We avoid harming others in actions or in words. He says in verse 3, "...and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend." Now, did you notice how these verses are working? They move from our words to our actions and then back to our words. If we don't want to slander or gossip, then we don't want to harm others in any way. We don't want to harm them by saying mean or insulting things. I remember one day I was uh, with a group of people and we were waiting for uh, a meeting to begin. And uh, the leader in that meeting spoke to the group. I didn't realize that he was addressing me, so I didn't respond. Almost immediately, he said to me in front of the group, What are you, a deer in the headlights? And I was kind of, what? I I was startled. And, And I dismissed it. I found later on that I was starting to hold a grudge against him and I knew I was going to have to see him on a fairly regular basis. And so I've had to work to forgive him. But then one day this dawned on me. What must it be like to live with someone who is so quick to give you a tongue lashing? What must that be like? How painful must it be to be subject to put-downs, verbal degradings, and insults? By the way, what do we call that? We call that verbal what? Verbal abuse. And no one who is walking in intimacy with the Savior who rode in humbly on a foal of a donkey on Palm Sunday, abuses people verbally. You see, when we're walking in intimacy with the Savior, we avoid harming others in actions or words. Let's look at the next one. Number four. We clearly stand with those loving the Lord, not those despising him. Look at verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. What is the Lord saying here? God is very, very clear that we have to choose sides in this wicked world. We have to be willing to take a public stand for the Lord against wickedness. 
God is very clear in His Word what He is for and what He is against. The Bible says about Jesus that when He came, in the book of Hebrews, He loved righteousness and He hated iniquity. You remember near the end of his life as Joshua was addressing uh, the people that he had led. And he knew their proneness to follow other gods. He said to them in his farewell in Joshua 24 and verse 15, he said these words. He said, choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then you may remember Elijah in that great contest with the 400 prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. As he called back the people to a walk with the Lord their God, he said to them, Why do you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord be God, serve Him. If Baal be God, serve Him. We have to make a choice. Now this doesn't mean that we go around wagging our fingers in people's faces and telling them that they are wrong. I spent some time in the sauna at the Peef. I was there yesterday. I hear a lot of things in the sauna that I do not agree with or appreciate, but I have come to realize I am not the pastor of the sauna. But I will say this, I've had times when the language in the sauna has been awful, and in the course of the conversation, I have been able to say to somebody, you know, I'm a pastor, and the whole atmosphere changes. <laughs> and I've been able to witness to some of the men I have said that to. So this is not talking about going around being the pastor of everyone we meet. But what does he mean here? He means that we do not compromise when the chips are down. We don't try to make ourselves acceptable by blending in so we will not be rejected. When wrong is being done, we stand against it if necessary, and we do not associate with it. And we also do not avoid the harder truths of Scripture just to get people to like us. When I was a boy, I grew up with a neighbor who I would describe as a chameleon. He changed colors with whoever he was with. When he was with believers, he would act like believers. When he was with non-believers, he would act like non-believers. One day when we were teenagers, we were snow sledding together, and a classmate of his, he was about two years older than me, showed up at the sledding hill, and my friend began to swear a blue streak laughing as he did. I was stunned. 
I had never heard him speak those words, and we were now teenagers, but it was very clear he had been speaking those words many times. And he was trying to impress a worldly friend. Look how cool I am. I can get down and dirty with my language just like you can. And I realized, I realized, my friend had no convictions he was willing to stand on. He was not willing to lose friends if necessary for what he believed. Sadly, sadly, today he's on his fourth marriage. No one respects a compromiser. No one does. And if we are walking in intimacy with God, then it becomes very, very clear who we stand with and who we are willing to stand against. When I was a boy growing up, we often would sing this song, Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the King? And that was a wonderful reminder that God calls us to be on His side. Let's look at the next one. Next, if we are walking in intimacy with the Lord and living this kind of abundant life that He has wonderfully provided, we keep our promises even when it costs us to do so. Look at the end of verse 4. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. God is a God who keeps His promises, doesn't He? That's the whole bedrock for our faith. One of my favorite verses is 1 Thessalonians 5.24 Faithful is He who called you, who also will do it. If God calls and promises, He does. I love 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. If God makes a promise, we can be absolutely sure that that promise will be yes, and He will fulfill what He promised. So think about this. If we are walking in intimacy with Him, and in fellowship with Him, then we will be the same way. We will keep our promises even when it costs us to do so. Let me probe this a little bit for us this morning. We could talk about no-fault divorce today, couldn't we? We stand before God and our mate and we make a promise. And we say, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. But then when problems arise or the romance fades, too many easily break the vow that they made. Now don't misunderstand me. There are grounds for divorce. And I have married people with a divorce in their background. 
God also forgives every person who has ever gone through a divorce when they come to Him for forgiveness. But in our culture today, it is far too easy to walk away from that marriage and break our promise. We could talk about paying our bills or our taxes on time, couldn't we? I remember a lady who hired home remodelers and then she refused to pay them. For the rest of her life that I knew her, she could never take communion again with a clear conscience because she knew I refused to pay them. It bothers my conscience, therefore I cannot take communion. We could talk about breaking our commitments in the church, couldn't we? We promise that we're going to join a ministry. But then at the least inconvenience, we back out, leaving our leaders high and dry and having to look for somebody else. I knew a lady who said she was going to teach children Sunday school. And she came in and made a great big show, remodeling the room and overshadowing all the other teachers. And then in just a few weeks, she quit letting down all the children she promised and professed that she loved. And what is God saying to us? If we can't do it, don't promise it. And if we promise it, We better do it unless God in some providential way intervenes so that we can't do it. You see, we keep our promises even when it costs us to do so. Let's notice the last one. Number six. Notice verse five. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Now this is not saying that a business or a bank cannot charge interest to make a profit. You remember how in the parable of the talents that Jesus commended those who invested their talents and made a profit through interest. What then is this condemning? Well, this is condemning loan sharking. What God was saying to His people is you are not to take advantage of the poor who have no recourse by charging them interest. What God was saying is you do that, it's like kicking a man when he was down. And then when you add the second half of verse 5 against taking bribes, it is clear that the issue here is putting money ahead of people. That's the issue. You see, God is a God who is generous, isn't He? God is a God who cares for the poor and the disadvantaged. And God calls us to use our resources, not simply for ourselves, but to be unselfish and generous with those who need it. And the issue here is putting money ahead 
of people. Last week I had with me the Kiche Bible that was translated by the missionary Bill Vasey, and I told you how that Bible was completed in 2008. But what I didn't tell you was the rest of the story. When he put in his order for the Kiche Bible from the Wycliffe Bible translators, the order got confused. He ordered 5,000 copies, and another people language ordered 7,500 copies, and the orders got switched. He got the 7,500 copies, and the other missionary with the other people group somewhere else in the world, they got the 5,000 copies. Whose fault was it? It was Wycliffe's fault, right? No one would expect him to pay the extra costs on such an order. By the way, you know what the extra costs were? $25,000. How many of you know a missionary who's got twenty-five grand laying around? You know what Bill has done? He has spent the last 10 years working hard to sell every last copy so that Wycliffe will not have to take the loss. He does not want a mission organization publishing Bibles for poor people and then losing $25,000. He had copies of the Bible with him. And I said, I would like to buy one. What's it cost? He said, $10. I said, well, I'll give you $20. He said, no. No. It's $10. That's all I ask. Now, ten years later, he's whittled it down to... $1,600 left. Bill Vasey is a giver, not a taker. He is a giver. He is not a taker. And no wonder at 74 years of age, he is still not moved serving God by pastoring three churches in Wisconsin. That's what I call a man who does these things and shall never be moved. Remember what Pastor Chuck Swindoll said as we began this message? A believer needs to make sure he is walking in the will of God consistently to enjoy fellowship with God and stability in his life. That's what Psalm 15 is about. 
It is about consistently walking in the will of God to enjoy fellowship with Him. And the kind of strength, purpose, and consistency that means we will never be moved. Let's affirm together this morning, Lord, You saved me for a reason. You've called me for a purpose. And that purpose is to walk with You that people might see Your life in our lives. Let's read together what we are called to as the people of God if we want to enjoy the intimacy that the Lord has given to us. Would you join me? Let's read them one by one. Our character is undivided or complete in pursuing what is right. We are trustworthy. What we say matches what we think and do. We avoid harming others in actions or words. We clearly stand with those loving the Lord, not those despising Him. We keep our promises even when it costs us to do so. And we are generous with our money, not selfish or grasping. Let's bow together, shall we, in prayer. As we are before the Lord this morning, I wonder how God has spoken to your heart. It's very easy to get careless, isn't it? It's easy to become lax. Isn't it easy to presume upon the grace of God? How easy we fall into those kind of patterns. We can be so satisfied that we're on our way to heaven and enjoying the salvation and the grace that God has provided. But we can lose sight of the fact that He calls us to walk in the light as He is in the light. That if we say that we abide in Him, we must walk as He walked. And how easy it is to become careless. This morning, however God is speaking to your heart, would you do business with Him? Would you say, Lord, I have a problem. There's an issue here. And I don't want to be weak and unstable. I don't want to stagger and stumble through life. I want to be the kind of person that is consistent in your will. And therefore shall never be moved. Stable. 
secure. People know who I am, what direction I am going. And I can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Whatever area has become careless in your life, bring it now to the foot of the cross. Jesus died for you that you might be like Him. He became your Savior that you might pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow Him. He said, whoever shall love his life in this world shall lose it. But whoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel shall find it. Lord Jesus, probe our hearts deeply today. You wrote in on Palm Sunday to a group of people who truly didn't understand the offer that you were making. You came not to offer then a physical kingdom, but a kingdom within our hearts. You came not to rule on a throne in Jerusalem at that time, but you came to rule and reign on the throne of our hearts. And as we used to sing, Who will serve the Master? Who will follow the King? Who will be His helpers? Other lives to bring. Lord, we bring our lives to You today as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable in Your sight, but we know this is our reasonable worship. Change us and make us like you today. We love you for it. For Jesus' sake. Amen.